Welcome back to Read and Succeed. I'm your host, Dave Campbell, here on your community radio station, 106.5 FM, WFMPLP Louisville. Black History Month, reviewing the late Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Les Payne's 2020 National Book Award winner, The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X. Good stuff. Stay tuned. Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Greetings to all Democracy Now! listeners on Pacifica Affiliate Forward Radio 106.5 FM, WFMP LP in Louisville, Kentucky. This grassroots community radio station relies on volunteer power and your financial support to continue broadcasting the progressive, national, and homegrown local programming you've come to expect from Forward Radio. At a time when our public airwaves are being gobbled up by corporate interests, here's an open mic dedicated to local voices, civic engagement, and community empowerment. Please go to forwardradio.org and pledge your generous support today. Thank you so much. Welcome to Episode 17 of Read and Succeed, celebrating Black History Month, reading and reviewing the 2020 National Book Award winner for nonfiction, The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X, by late African-American journalist and founding member of the National Association of Black Journalists, Mr. Les Payne co-authored and finished by his principal researcher and daughter, Ms. Tamara Payne, in 2020, two years after his untimely death in 2018. It's an absolutely groundbreaking read, and a completely unfiltered, no-holds-barred look into the context, conflicts, and outright controversies that gave rise to what many credible historical analysts considered to be 20th century black America's main ideological counterbalance to U.S. civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., for whereas, broadly stated, Dr. King wanted black America to be a catalyst for reforming a white-dominated socioeconomic system, and with it reforming America itself, Malcolm X wanted to be a catalyst for reforming black America to see black America as a system completely in and of itself, and as part of a larger system of black identity that extends well beyond, before, and assumedly after American borders and history. Similarly, many credible literary analysts are now considering Payne's The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X, to be the biographical counterbalance to author David G. Garrow's Bearing the Cross, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Southern Leadership Conference, winner of the 1986 Pulitzer Prize for Biography. For whereas Bearing the Cross was written by a white, erudite, professional activist with a Ph.D. from Duke University, The Dead Are Arising was written by an African-American Vietnam War veteran who spent his entire career in the war room of old-school print journalism at Newsday in New York City, working the beat to get the story on the same streets Malcolm X himself once preached, and openly indebted to Malcolm X for helping him shed what he later articulated to be his own internalized racism, after hearing Malcolm X himself speak in person as a young college student in 1963. Bearing the cross, like Martin Luther King and David Garrow, waxes eloquent, lofty, academic, and multicultural. The dead are arising, like Malcolm X and Les Payne, simply tells things blow for blow exactly like they are. That everyman quality about both Malcolm X and Mr. Payne bristles throughout the text. But this is not to say that Mr. Payne, like Malcolm X, is not capable of delivering brilliant arguments and powerful prose, the same as Dr. Martin Luther King or Dr. David Garrow. 
serving as the next generational iteration and a cultural and intellectual engagement by Black America with the person and work of Malcolm X, the last iteration being American film director Spike Lee's 1992 biopic starring Denzel Washington, the first being the posthumous publishing of Malcolm X's autobiography by journalist Alex Haley in 1965, The Dead Are Arising operates in the same stylistic realm as the works of two-time Pulitzer Prize-winning author Robert D. Carl most recognized for his still ongoing biographical series on the late U.S. President Lyndon Baines Johnson. In summary, it is a rendering of a massive historical figure into simple, clear Freudian view, but done so on the foundation of unimaginably tedious and voluminous investigative journalism. One family, one friend, one colleague interview, one newspaper clip, even one receipt or bank statement at a time. Carl's planned five-volume, 5,000-page series on LBJ has taken the greater part of 40 years to complete. Payne's one-volume, 500-page work on Malcolm X itself took nearly 30 years to complete. Unlike the Negro spiritual awakening undertones of both Alex Haley and Spike Lee's interpretations, Payne has this generation's encounter with Malcolm X awakened directly out of the source materials of American history itself. Born Malcolm Little in Omaha, Nebraska on May 19, 1925, Payne places Malcolm's rather urban Pan-Africanism there at his earliest memories in rural America. Raised by parents Earl and Louise Little, whose household was saturated with the ideas and literature of racial self-sufficiency and race community insularity of Jamaican-American political activist Marcus Garvey. Racism and outright racial terrorism abounded in 1920s America, with the formation of the second Ku Klux Klan in the mid-1910s and, following the additional powder keg of a global pandemic in 1919, summer after summer of race riots and lynchings. The Little family themselves lost a house to a KKK splinter group in 1929. Malcolm lost his father Earl, it was assumed but never officially solved, to the same group in 1931. A loss that, per pain, scarred Malcolm for the rest of his life with an emotional wandering that led him into foster care in his early adolescence, seedy East Coast Depression-era street crime in his late teens, prison throughout most of his 20s, and eventually into the ideological arms of the Nation of Islam and the Honorable Prophet Elijah Muhammad as a surrogate father in his early 30s. A destination that Payne and even Malcolm's interviewed siblings, unlike Spike Lee, Alex Haley, and potentially even Malcolm X himself, see less as a quote-unquote new Malcolm and more of a return to the disciplined Pan-African Garveyism practiced by his parents in his early childhood. And the author also sees the appeal of the Nation of Islam to the burned-out margins of black America in the mid-20th century in the same and plausibly argued psychological context as the appeal of the Mormon Church to the burned-out margins of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant America a century earlier. Malcolm's eventual and now famous split from the Nation of Islam into private practice as an Orthodox Sunni Muslim in 1964 did, per pain, have to do with what he perceived to be personal and spiritual duplicity on the part of Elijah Muhammad, but equally so because of a secret 1961 meeting in Atlanta, Georgia, ordered by Elijah Muhammad himself, between Malcolm X and none other than local leadership of the Ku Klux Klan to discuss common ideological ground and potential business opportunities on the issue of complete racial separation in the United States versus the infinitely grayer realm of racial desegregation in the United States then being preached by MLK. A secret meeting that Malcolm privately loathed in his post-Nation of Islam life and a story that Mr. Payne, a black journalist, first reports and, two years after his death, a story his daughter Tamara, a black researcher, is still sticking to in a text that carries both her and her father's name and journalistic reputations. Self-liberated from the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X's pan-African ideals enter full blossom, 
transitioning large portions of black American self-identity and self-description from Negro to colored to black to the phrase African American that is now commonly used in official demographic descriptions by the U.S. government, before himself succumbing to the deadly 1960s Byzantine web of secrets, informants, and assassinations of J. Edgar Hoover's America that claimed John and Robert F. Kennedy, eventually Martin Luther King, and in the end united Malcolm X with his pan-African act of his father in meeting a death at the hands of his enemies that to this day still remains officially unsolved. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. This next interview is a November 2020 discussion between Ms. Lamerche Frazier, Director of Education at the Museum of African American History in Boston, Massachusetts, and artist in the African American Master Artist in Residence Program at Northeastern University, and none other than Tamara Payne herself, joined mid-interview by her mother Victoria and her brother Jamal to talk about the book, her father, his career in journalism, and ultimately about Malcolm X and how his ideas and persona reached them through all the channels I just mentioned. And interestingly enough, how they perceived Malcolm X might think about the Black Lives Matter movement we see in our present day. It's a fascinating interview, and special thanks to the GBH Forum Network and the Boston Public Library for this content. Learn more about the GBH Forum Network at forum-network.org. Learn more about Forward Radio and consider donating to Community Radio at forwardradio.org. Learn more about Read and Succeed at readandsucceed.net. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, subscribe to us on YouTube, and enjoy this interview. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Thank you for joining us for this talk together. Moderating this evening's conversation is Lamerchi Frazier from the Museum of African American History here in Boston. Please join me in welcoming back Lamerchi to facilitate this evening's discussion with Tamara Payne. Lamerchi Frazier is a visual and performance artist, educator, and activist. She is the Director of Education at the Museum of African American History, MA, here in Boston, and an artist in the African Master Artist in Residence Program at Northeastern University. Lamerchi, welcome and thank you for joining us for this important conversation today. Thank you to the collaborators for this evening and the honor of being with the Payne family and their, um, and, and Tamara, who has completed a work of her father's and worked very closely with Les Payne, who was an award-winning journalist and a great man, a big man, a, bit, a man with a big idea, as Garvey uh, was quoted, in, uh, in the book that uh, Tamara finished. Um, we'd like to uh, thank his family for being here, but the honor of, of having um, descendants and, and people who are uh, from a, a family that will, has created legacy is very important to us in the stream of what this book means and the legacy of the family of Malcolm X and the legacy of uh, Les Payne. And so um, it is indeed with that, I, I would like to say that uh, what is critical uh, to us here in Boston, that this was a place where Malcolm was. This is a place where he lived with his aunt on Dale Street in Roxbury in a place that we can ride by every day if we like and look at the plaque that's there. Um, there is a mosque here that he helped to formulate. There is a co-founder with Les of a group called the Trotter Group of uh, Black journalists who, led, who lead conversations with Black columnists. And Derek Jackson, our own Boston Globe reporter, former Boston Globe reporter, had some real comments on Les Payne. 
that brought him even closer to why this is an intriguing book because of his commitment like that of Malcolm to eradicating racism and his commitment to, to being a reporter. And as Derek has shared with me his, um, his comments concerning uh, journalism and, and black journalism especially is that it was not for entertainment purposes. Les Payne believed that uh, we are here to tell the truth that people do not want to hear. And I thought that was extremely significant as he, he talked about that. And his, his article on Les Payne gave us a view that though this man was called a lion, that he was also someone we would like to understand more about. And I will say more about that later if we have the, the time. But now I want to, to uh, ask Tamara some questions and, and I thank you for being here uh, Tamara to bring in more of what it was like to work with your father on this book that took almost what 30 years is that correct yeah. mm -hmm. yes okay um, and uh, the question I, I first want to begin with is tracing Malcolm X's steps from Nebraska as it's uh, set in your introduction Nebraska Cauldron, uh, where he was born, his family life, what shaped him, the gunshots that would silence him forever. In tracing those steps, what was it like for you as we use the word, particularly in places like Boston, for trailing and walkable history, uh, as we walk the history here, but intellectually, you have walked this journey with your father. Can you tell us something about how that felt and what it was like and all the kind of interviews and things that you did to bring this forward. I would say it's like grad school on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> it was dad's approach to putting to telling this narrative, the story is is you he's a journalist to the core. And as you so eloquently shared with us, Derek, Derek Jackson's comments about dad telling the truth that makes that uncomfortable because the importance of journalism as dad saw it was that it gives information information is powerful as he had seen it and giving people the information to be able to make informed decisions and that's how you affect change in people people have their ideas about Malcolm because he was given to us and I'm certainly when I learned about him in school, now I learned about him in different ways. I learned about him at home because my father was influenced by Malcolm Plato's speeches almost every weekend. And I also read his autobiography, but in school he's given, he's taught a different way. And he's given to us fully formed and angry. And so the, and everybody has their responses to him because of that, you know, he's angry and why is he so angry and, and why, and, and this is, can also be translated to a lot of experience that we as Black Americans have experienced when we respond to our circumstances. And the thing is, is we have to understand what the circumstances are. So that in using journalism, because that meant meeting people that knew Malcolm who were on the scene, starting with his brothers and his other siblings, his sister, he spoke with all of them and his sisters also, meeting them, questioning them, learning about them, and then as they tell their stories, they're gonna talk about other people that were there, 
other families like the McGuire's who were also on the scene. They're going to talk, you know, we learned about John Davis Jr., who is Malcolm's running and running buddy in Lansing when after his father had died and he was turning and he was in his teen years and he was a little bit older than Malcolm. So it's like you're hearing their stories and not only just hearing the stories and reading letters that people are sharing with you, but also looking at what's happening at, at that time for them in the newspapers and hearing what's going on and understanding what's going on historically and that their actions, much like our actions, are in responses to what's happening around them. So it's like walking through living history. And so the process was, as you're learning through this, were you learning about it and we don't learn it in chronological order. You know, we start in, in Detroit. So we're learning about the brothers and where we, and people move around. So they talk about stories about in other places. But then it's it, what you start to learn about is what is happening in all these different places. What's common, what's different, what opportunities were, were made available to people in other places that they weren't available to them where they were coming from particularly if you look at the migration from the South to the North or from, and in Malcolm's case also, when he moved from Michigan to, to Massachusetts. So to me, it was exhilarating learning this and hearing people's stories about their experiences. And then also learning about it, going to newspapers. And I had a lot of fun going to libraries and, and looking up a lot of the newspapers and then looking up, you know, you see these little book reports that were done, you know, that genealogical societies or chambers of commerce were doing about their towns at that time. So there's a lot of information that you're calling together. But then later on, what I'm learning too is, and gaining more confidence at this, I have to start finding people on my own too, that knew Malcolm. Being in New York and in 1990 and Malcolm was being resurrected again, and not that Malcolm ever really left the scene, but what's happening is that culturally, everybody was gravitating to him. Rappers were quoting him. People were, re were reading the autobiography and talking about it, whereas they weren't necessarily doing that when I was younger. If you read it for class, that was, may have been it. But now it's like people are picking it up on their own and rereading it and talking about it and applying it, you know, his analysis to what they're experiencing. And then you start to you know, realize people want to come together and they want to talk more about him. We start having talking sessions and then somebody might say, hey, I know somebody who knew Malcolm back in the 1960s or was there. And I go look for them or I go talk to them and hear, hear their story. And then I bring them to dad and then dad would further interview them and fit in, finding out where their story fit into to what Malcolm was doing. And it was incredibly watching dad really organize and reorganize this information over the years. He worked on this book for 28 years and passed suddenly in 2018. And, but what he, watching him just massively know where, what dates, not so much even dates, but places and what people were saying and what was important. And it was always in his mind, even while he was working at Newsday and managing other desks and sending reporters all over the world to cover stories. He's, that's his full-time job, his day job. And he's still working on this book and still on top of all this information. So it was just masterful. It was just really incredible watching him do that and being able to work with him to do that. And then as his daughter, we have, he's, he's my father, I'm his daughter. He knows what I'm capable of doing. And he's passed, literally passing on the skills to do this to me. 
and learning how to interview, learning how to talk to people, understanding what's important to stories, storytelling, writing. I mean, we, we talked about so many things to put this book together over, over those 28 years of working together. And, and then also just learning even about history, seeing the brutality of the Red Summer of 1919 and going over that Omaha incident was horrible. And then hearing there are even more stories that are bad and that were driving people from the South to the North. So it was just amazing just learning this and not being afraid of this information, but understanding that this happened and this, these incidents, they have an effect on people. And this isn't just Malcolm's story, this is our story, whether we're black or white whether we're coming in this country, this is our story. This affects all of us and understanding how that happened. So that's the long answer. <laughs> but a great answer. Thank you very much. I, I, I appreciate what we've learned in that answer. <laughs> For those just joining us, this is a November 10th, 2020 interview between Ms. Lamarcha Frazier, Director of Education at the Museum of African-American History in Boston, Massachusetts, and Mr. Mayor Payne, Principal Researcher and later co-author of her late father, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Les Payne's 2020 National Book Award winner for nonfiction, The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X, courtesy of the GBH Forum Network. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. I want to um, also look at and the influence of Malcolm's family on his mm. life, particularly his mother. Could you share some of what you have found in terms of um, his father and mother being Garveyites and what uh, being associated with uh, Marcus Garvey uh, meant as he developed? I mean Oh, yeah. I mean, it's important to understand that Marcus Garvey was important. I mean, he came into the country around 19. Okay, I'm going to get the dates wrong, I'm sure. So <laughs> it's probably around 1910, right? So, and he's important because what he was bringing with him, he's already, he's already global because he's comes from Jamaica. And so that's already the international um, bent on his what he's talking about and what he's talking about is having black people around the world embrace who we are as black people and, and being independent building our own communities embracing who we are and that's important and then also having a connection with the continent Africa and and how that happens is because we're talking now about the diaspora you know, it's not just America and the continent. You have people who are in Brazil, you have people who are in Jamaica, you have people who are in, in, in Britain. All of these people should be connecting up and also connecting up with the, with the continent who are Africans, who are originally from there. But what, how that translates here in the United States is different communities for black people, you know, building up, being independent and building up their own um, communities. And, being self-reliant and, and independent and, and making their own money and building their own homes and owning their and being landowners. But you're also doing this against a backdrop of laws that there are lands where we can't buy because there are exclusionary clauses where that prevents us from owning them. And that, you know, the little families suffered in Lansing when their um, houses burned down by white neighbors after they were evicted because of such an exclusionary clause. So, but the thing about family, this was the grounding for Malcolm. And when you hear Malcolm throughout his life, whether he's in the Nation of Islam and even after, he is still talking about Black people doing for themselves, 
and being free, but also building, standing up and, and building and, and fighting for their own rights, but building their own communities also and not accepting handouts. Dad grew up in Hartford, so he spends an, a lot of time in, in the um, book talking about Hartford because Malcolm did organize a temple there. And what was great about that experience was because dad grew up there and it turned out he knew of those families who were part of that uh, organizing that the original, the, or, the founders of that temple who had invited Malcolm. He knew some of those people. In fact, one of them worked with his brother, my uncle John at the post office and, you know, and, and they knew each other. And dad got his story. But what's interesting in, in, the, in talking about that is that you really get to see how Malcolm would organize as a leader and relate to the people and how he would try to get them. One of the things he would say to them is like, okay, it's important that you get a job no matter what the job is. Don't get, don't take welfare. You know, that was one of the things he was telling those men and, and organizing. And so and, and just standing up and, and just being, being a contribution to your society and your community. And, res- and also the respect. He really preached on, on respecting each other, men and women, and being together and helping each other and being more of a community. These were things that his, fa- his father was doing when he was organizing other black families in the towns that they, grew- that they moved to. That's one of the reasons why when Earl and Louise meet, they settle in Philadelphia first, and then eventually they move to Omaha, Nebraska, and then they move to Wisconsin, and they move to these places because they want to help other families build up their communities. They're organizing them in these communities, as well as you know building up their own you know family. So it's important. It's part of his foundation, and it and it never he never walks away from that, and neither do his brothers. Neither do his brothers. The book is fascinating as I read it in revealing um, the names of his brothers and how they also were involved in the Nation of Islam and have been moving as a, a unit together, not giving up on one who was in prison like, like he was and then encouraging him and how this family wrapped around his success as, uh, as we see it going forward. But they also had their own agendas of, uh, of uplift uh, and their participation. And so um, uh, I really enjoyed what you present, what your father and you present in helping us to understand that these, the people who are fighting and struggling for uh, respect and dignity are doing it because it's at the basis of their heart and their training in that family, um, in that family way, and as a collective go forward with it. And looking at what what was written about you and your family and you being a co-pilot, a co-navigator of the, what your father wrote lends to this idea that you are a daughter of legacy. You are taking on the task of making this book, this great volume that is revealing of the life of Malcolm X uh, available for us. So um, as a women who are keeping uh, keeping our eye going forward and advancing in uh, this very important history. How do you feel about what has happened as a res- as, with respect to this book so far? I know it hasn't been out long, but the lives that it will touch and how your family has supported you 
in being able to do this. You know, I never expected that my father would die in the, in the middle of this project. I always expected him to be here, as I'm sure he did too. And when he died, I was obviously was devastated, as was the rest of my family. I have two brothers, Jamal and Hiley, who also lost their father, my mother, Violet Payne, who lost her husband. And because, you know, my father was also about family, but without my family, my brothers and my mother, their support, their love, there's no way that I would have been able to complete this book. It was not a question for me when my father passed away, whether or not this book would be completed. That was my, that was going to happen. That was my, I was determined to make sure that happened. But my family also was on board with this and they, they supported me in a way that I could full, spend the last two years full time and making sure that this happened. And one of the most important things for me in completing the work wasn't just simply completing the work and getting it published, but having my father's voice preserved in the writing of, the, of his life's work. I wanted to make sure that happened. And it wasn't until I had my uncle John, who was my father's best friend and his oldest brother and my mother, both read the book. I mean, my brothers, of course, but those two, because they knew my father's voice very well also. And it wasn't until they said, your father's in there. That's your father's voice. That I felt that I could say, okay, mission accomplished, you know. We'll see how it goes from here, but that was the most important thing to happen. For those just joining us, this is a November 10th, 2020 interview between Ms. Lamarcha Frazier, Director of Education at the Museum of African American History in Boston, Massachusetts, and Ms. Tamara Payne, Principal Researcher and later co-author of her late father, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Les Payne's 2020 National Book Award winner for nonfiction, The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X, courtesy of the GBH Forum Network. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. Well, we have two members of your family here yes. that we would like to introduce to everyone. Uh, that's a great segue into bringing them forward. And uh, the first we would like to say, the, uh, the wife of uh, Les Payne is here and I would like her to be uh, able to talk to us about this book and uh, Violet, Mrs. Violet Payne is uh, I certainly was introduced to her this evening, but got a chance to hear her on another interview. And um, she was also a very strong element in this book being done. So Violet, would you like to uh, tell us about your experience here? This was a, a labor of love. And I always believe in Liz's uh, thought process and his writing. And it was so important to see this book to its completion because I felt that people would really enjoy it. Not only that, but they would also answer questions about experiences that they have experienced in their lives. Less it's true that Les is, was a family member, a family man, and he included us in a lot of listening to him uh, read passages from the books or from his multitude of columns that he wrote with Newsday on Long Island. I guess uh, we have, we had a very rich life on Long Island. I'm not saying that Long Island is like America, but 
we made it rich because we needed to guide our children to be well-situated world citizens and that they not just think of their parochial environment. We really thought that. And so this book was really an epitome of, of, of what we are trying to do. Okay, thank you. Um, and now uh, Jamal, if you will uh, come in. Jamal Payne is Tam Tamara's brother and Violet's son. And um, we'd love to hear what your take is on, uh, on the book. Uh, thank you, Lamerchi. And uh, what, what I would like people to know about my dad, Les Payne, is that he was the ultimate journalist. And you know, and and as far as a father around the around the hearth, as they would say, with the kitchen table for us, it was like, as Tammy said, grad school level journalism. I mean, we were given you know training grounds unlike anybody else. I mean, I would take what we know about journalism. And we probably could go up against a lot of journalists that are out there, and that's not just them. But it's to say that you know, uh, my dad, you know, he he really he really shared a lot of information with us. We were not just children to be seen and not heard. He spoke to us, he listened to us, and he trained us. He prepared Tammy for 28 years, just in case. But it, it, he wasn't ever looking at just this book. He was preparing her because he knew what she had and what she could do. And I mean, what she has accomplished by getting this book across the finish line is Herculean. It is unbelievable. I mean, there are no words to describe what she did. And uh, but what I want people to walk away from from this book, and I mean, I know it's very, it, it's it's there's so much information that's so rich. But what I want people to understand is that my dad believed he had overcome his sense of self-loathing as an african-american or black as his word in america you know we were we were conditioned in this country there is a conditioning that happens and he was able to overcome that as malcolm was as marcus mosiah garvey was and he he imposed that on us his children and and he wants to offer that as to we don't have to accept this conditioning we don't have to accept that we have to be 10 times better it's okay to say I can be just as good and that's good enough and we're equal and we, we should deserve, we deserve to stand up and take our rightful place as citizens. And, you know, and, and, and he preached this every day. I mean, and this is what we live and breathe. And so in this book, that's what you find is that he was able to see the humanity in Malcolm, but he was also able to see the answer for us that we don't have to look at ourselves and see that we're not enough. We are enough. And uh, you know that's that's what I would like people to know. Well, thank you so much. Um, I I think that that uh, begs the understanding of how he began to help us to use the word black. Um, mm -hmm. That right. is uh, yes. evident in the introduction that uh, he said in a in a gathering where he heard Malcolm in Hartford uh, at the Bushnell Hall, that famous Bushnell Hall, right. that he walked in the Bushnell Hall as a Negro. But as he came out into the parking lot, he was a black man. He identified with that word black. Tamara, yeah. could you talk Lamar, about I just, Yeah, I, I just also wanted to talk a little bit about the photographs that we had up of my father. Oh, sure. um, while we were speaking, that was a picture of my father with uh, Nelson Mandela in the background. Um, it was done actually for, I guess, the piece that Derek Jackson was um, had written. And yeah. not 
And this photograph is um, dad. This was when Mandela came out in 1994 of jail and he was freed. And dad was invited back to South Africa after being banned <laughs> to reporting it's because of his reporting on the Soweto uprising. And um, he was able to interview um, Nelson Mandela when he was freed. And this is an interview of him um, at um, Nelson Mandela's home in Orlando West and also in Soweto, South Africa. And the photograph also where my father's standing with the cover of Newsday is actually in the newsroom of Newsday on Long Island. Um, and that's really how I see my dad a lot because um, I would see him. He was always going to Newsday. <laughs> Are coming home from Newsday <laughs> and calling into Newsday. Many hours there, and this is, you know, it is the newsroom where, you know, he commanded. Um, a, he trained a lot of journalists. Um, he, you know, because this is actually in Melville, Long Island. So this is when he's actually he's a man, assistant managing editor, and then he went on to become associate manager, and then he also went on to uh, be manager for the Queen's Edition. Um, but here in the Long Island is where he trained a lot of uh, reporters who to this day, you know, we still get phone calls and emails from them, you know, how much they missed dad. He was their best boss and he, he really knew how to groom them and, and brought out the best of them and trained them to be really, really, you know, awesome, excellent reporters. And Derek Jackson was one of them. And yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, there are good memories yeah. there. Um, but you had a question for me you want me to address. For those just joining us, this is a November 10th, 2020 interview between Ms. Lamerta Frazier, Director of Education at the Museum of African American History in Boston, Massachusetts, and Mr. Mayor Payne, Principal Researcher and later co-author of her late father, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Les Payne's 2020 National Book Award winner for nonfiction, The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X, courtesy of the GBH Forum Network. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. Well, the, the question really uh, becomes that of uh, the placement of identity and how important that was to your father and then the parallels with that and uh, uh, Malcolm um, and how this in your, what was that like to work with in terms of the information that your father shared and uh, where we are today and then I want to ask another question about that that has been directed to us from our audience. Um, I go a little bit back to like what my brother's saying growing up. Um, it probably I would say been a little more difficult while we were growing up because what we were learning from our father and, and mother um, was about being authentically who we are as black people and no man and we grew up in Long Island, Suffolk County, um, majority white schools, um, and we had to stand up. I mean, whether we were playing, Jamal played the cello, I played the violin, my other youngest brother, Hailey, also played the violin, whether they were playing sports, you know, whether it's baseball, softball, wrestling, I like to do dance, but the thing is, whatever it was we wanted to do in studying languages, foreign languages, um, you know, we had to compete, and we also had to stay true to who we were. There was this belief, you know, that we as black people had to um, adjust ourselves when we were in the company of other people of other races and well in the white race in the majority situation and that was really more difficult growing up and that was 
where the where it was competitive, where it was complicated, where it was really. But after we went through that, after we graduated high school for us, we were prepared because we had gone through 12 years of that. And we had our parents standing on our shoulders and supporting us and pushing us and fighting for us. Um, but when we had to go outside, you know, when we go to college, you know, we're still, it's at that point, we were ready, we were prepared to deal and compete. And, and now it becomes a thing of helping others like us who have to deal and compete and, um, and, and understand what that is. And so it's always important that we understand what it means to be authentically who we are. You know, it's not about, because growing up, what they would say to us is if you read or you sound articulate, you're sounding white. That's not acting black, you're acting white. And so, um, but if you, you know, but if you're hanging out the corner or you're dancing at all the parties, you're acting black. Or if you're loud in the lunchroom, you're acting black, you know, or you're aggressive, that's acting black. And the thing is, is that football players are aggressive. You know, it's like everybody, you know, these are characters of human characteristics. It shouldn't just be associated with the negative qualities of being um, attributed to a race. And so we really had, you know, we had to learn that and deal with that growing up. But by the time we get to college and, and onward, you know, it's like, okay, this is it. This, we already, we get this. And we were able to walk through the world that way, being authentically who we are. And, and that was a big thing with my father. He would talk about being authentic. And so when you bring it even to today, and there was a question I saw that came out about what I learned about with research. And I talked a lot about the research, but learning that this history, you know, is repeating itself. Um, you know, a hundred years ago, there was the plague. There was the Spanish flu. A hundred years ago, there was the red summer of 1919, and, which was brutal on blacks and black men in particular, but certainly black families, because when you take black, when you kill black men, you are leaving the women and the children without their father and oftentimes a breadwinner. So it's, it's, this is brutal. And so this is still happening. It has continued to happen with particularly the black families, but the history, like the pandemic, we have a pandemic happening right now. So these things have happened in cycles. Um, I think it's just important that we learn from it. We have access to information, getting that information, using that information to our advantage and, and making informed decisions on that information. And, um, and, and it's hard to find out what that information because we we're bombarded with it coming from you know, people who want to mislead us and, and misinform us and give misinformation. But we, have, but we do have access to it and we have to figure out how to do that. So it's important to see Black Lives Matter out there. And that is one of the things that they're fighting. Young people in the Black Lives Matter movement now are turning to Malcolm, you know, because they, he, he spoke to them just like he spoke to the kids in the 90s, you know, about the experience of being Black in America and so, and being authentically Black. And that's what it is. The authenticity, it's that return to authenticity and staying, sticking, because that's who we are. Why do we have to keep changing our hair Cut, you know, worrying about our eye color, worrying about how we, you know, how we look, the clothes we wear, you know, it's being, we have to be authentically who we are and, and, and standing up for that. I grant it. If you work in corporate America, you have to wear a suit, wear a suit. I get that, but don't be afraid to show up at the bar in the outfit you want to wear. 
you know, or the hairstyle you want to wear, you know, and, and I do argue about the hair thing on, on the corporate America, you know, because I had to go through that too. Um, but it's, we have to be authentic to who we are and we need to be supportive of us being authentically who we are. Because when it even comes to the hair thing, I remember when I was going natural, there were people who had issues with, you know, me going natural. It was, you know, it, it, it's like, that doesn't look right. It doesn't look corporate. It doesn't look me. And these were some black people saying this and we have to work on ourselves. Why are we saying that? Why are we seeing it that way? And we have to analyze that. And that is how we have internalized racism and to look at ourselves as less than. And it is what Malcolm was saying is like, embrace who you are, be who you are. You know, that should not stop you because that your hairstyle being in it in its natural state should not stop you being a, a good lawyer. It should not. It should not. Well, um, one of the uh, passages in the book talks about um, Malcolm and Martin Luther King in terms of just uh, part of that is an issue. It's the, the admonishing uh, and the chiding of Malcolm for you to be yourself and that transformative love of self um, being the, the embrace or the weapon against uh, white supremacy. And that King had another uh, method, which was um, nonviolent uh, protest. Um, um, and I'd like to kind of bring in something that um, your father said, quoted by uh, Derek Jackson in his article about, it. he said, we've lost that protest component when he was speaking to, uh, speaking about the uh, National, Black, National Association of Black Journalists. We've lost that protest component, the critical impulse that brought us into existence following the riots of the 1960s. It demanded that the newspaper and television stations increase their black numbers, improve their coverage and treat blacks fairly in the newsrooms. We've made progress, albeit insufficient, but I think we've been co-opted. And so as you talked about those cycles that keep reoccurring, it is important that you know, in looking at this Black Lives Matter movement that Derek has asked a, a question about the relevancy of Malcolm X uh, for yourself and what you just spoke. Um, this, is, this seems to be another one of those cycles happening. We don't know mm -hmm. how far it's gonna go and how long it's gonna go, but it, it is there. So um, in, in terms of what you learned in your research about Malcolm, what would you say that he would have as one of our audience members has asked this question, uh, what would you say he would say about the Black Lives Matter movement and the protest? I think that he would be in support of, this, of the young people out in the street, but he would want them to be more, um, not just in the street. It's important to be in the street, but we also have to fight in the polls, we have to run, you know, better candidates who really do address our issues. We have to know what our issues are um, and, and be, you know, and, and have some solutions about what those issues are. And, and not to always um, compromise on these solutions to the, our issues um, okay. or compromise or keep fighting. Like if you're gonna make the compromise, understand that the issue is still the issue and you have to still keep fighting it. It's um, and, and I think Malcolm would have had also, 
I can't speak for him, but I think that he would also have analyzed this. I don't think what we would be, we might have, we would be so far down this line right now if he had lived. Um, and I think that he would have had a better or more efficient plan of how to attack this. But I think it's important that one, as far as voting and stuff, I think that he would say hold both, you know, hold all of the political parties accountable. You know, not just, you know, the Republicans, it's both of them. He would say, he didn't really see a difference between the two of them back then. And, and I don't think he would now. And he would look at the system and he would look at the opportunities, but he would also say, why accept just these little crumbs? Now, I, I also want to say a little bit about Martin Luther King and that it wasn't, you know, there was a saying that was, um, that was used during segregation times um, in the civil rights movement. And that was that segregation um, creates a false sense of inferiority for the, for the segregatee, but also a false sense of superiority for the segregator being the whites and the and segregatee being the blacks. And Martin Luther King and the civil rights organizations of that time were working on changing and working on changing the minds and the laws of the segregators and having those laws change, for example, the Voters Rights Act, you know, and also later on, even the fair housing and, and as other laws had changed in affirmative action, but all of these laws, um, you know, yes, they helped, you know, they made the segregator more accountable. You know, but Malcolm was working on the mindset of the segregatee because they too have internalized this negative view of themselves and have accepted it. And what he's saying, like as my dad wrote about his own experience with Malcolm, is to release that and and to embrace who we are truly are. For those just joining us, this is a November 10th, 2020 interview between Ms. Lamerche Frazier, Director of Education at the Museum of African American History in Boston, Massachusetts, and Ms. Tamara Payne, Principal Researcher and later co-author of her late father, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Les Payne's 2020 National Book Award winner for nonfiction, The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X, courtesy of the GBH Forum Network. To listen to this entire interview, please visit readandsucceed.net. There are... A, a number of audience questions that uh, I'm sure we will not get to, but uh, I would like to ask uh, one major here that is what was the most intriguing thing you learned through your research on this book? Most intriguing. This whole story, this whole experience has been, I mean, it's been changing for me in, in many ways and, and it changes from day to day to even now at this point, but it was, I, it, it's changed me in a lot of ways, but it certainly has made me look at history and how it repeats itself and understanding that there are lessons. We really do need to look at these lessons of the past of when we, of these things that happened, these incidents that happened, they didn't just happen and it's over. And things that are still happening now that we still have to fight. If we're still fighting and we're using the same tools, we have to look at other ways to, to deal with it also. So, and sometimes it also may mean changing mindsets and how do we change mindsets? Well, how did the segregate, how did the civil rights movement do that? Because they were successful in getting laws passed. And those laws also 
a lot of those laws, the teeth have been taken out of them. If you look at the Voters' Rights Act, for example, mm -hmm. um, the teeth was taken out of that in 2015 by the Supreme Court. And now we have all these issues with the voter, voter suppressor. So all I'm saying is that we have to look at that. We have to look at our mindset. We have to look at the situation um, and not accept the repetition of this happening over and over again, but try to change it and, and, and make and mold. It. And this is, I mean, and it's really interesting to see the youth, you know, energy on that. So for me, I can't, it's really, I would say the most intriguing thing would be really just look, re-looking at history and re-examining it over and over and over again. And really, you know, just looking at the correlations, looking at the relations, I'm learning something new every time I sit down and look at it again and again and again. And you, we have to do that. That's the work that we have to do. Yes, yes. The, the, the book um, is so replete with details that we were uh, not aware of. Um, can you speak to uh, why this, this volume um, was written, why your father chose to do such a work? Um, uh, Derek Jackson shared with me that as he was working on it for the 28 years, their, one of their mantras uh, from the journalist that he knew was, uh, man, finish it, finish it, finish it. <laughs> and so you've managed to do that. <laughs> and uh, we're very appreciated. Pre appreciate that, that was that. my mother's mantra as well, Umerji. Oh, my mother's wonderful. mantra as well. <laughs> Wonderful, wonderful. So he was getting it from all sides uh, yeah. to do this and to complete this very awesome task because there are books by uh, about Malcolm, his own autobiography uh, done, uh, finished by uh, Alex Haley, uh, Marie Marable, uh, Marable. And you know, what was prompting him to say that we need this book, we need this information. Starting with those interviews with the brothers, um, Wilfred and Philbert. Um, look, Malcolm was important to my father as he is to a lot of young, you know, to a lot of black people here, right? And his ideas and how he analyzed our situation and how that analysis remains important and pertinent today. But when you start to realize, well, who is he really? And what was his family like? and that what's his lineage. And we understand there's a lineage for Martin Luther King. Now we, we are starting to look at the lineage of, of Malcolm X. And also putting him in context is really important because you know a person can say, I hate Malcolm. He's angry. I want nothing to do with him. He hates white people. But you have to put him in the context. White people hated black people. There were laws in place you know, that, that supported that. White supremacy was the rule of the land. And so there's a context for that. And, and we have to understand what, so if that is the context, how do you respond to that? And so what dad wanted to do was to give the context. And that's why you see so much of the history. And, and here's the other thing I wanna say that's amazing because we have to understand, this is coming from a person who grew up he was born in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. So he was born into Jim Crow South, my father. And then his family moved to Hartford, Connecticut. So he was part of the migration also. And he went to school in the North. He went to the, he served in the, Viet, in the Vietnam War in the US Army. So he has, he has done a lot of things. He is also a patriot. He also loves this country and the ideas of what this country could be. And so he was fighting for that, for all of us. And, and, and he believed in that. And so 
people don't think about that when they see my father. They don't even think about that when they see a black person. And it's like, when you go back to a hundred years ago, when black veterans are coming back from fighting World War I for American rights and freedoms, and they can't buy a house. You know, they have to step off the sidewalk when white, a white man passes. Um, why wouldn't they be angry about that? Yes. So that uh, is um, a very important aspect of what we need to know. And one of the questions that is repeatedly coming to us is why was Malcolm X shot? And what I would like to say is that uh, we have, we are running out of time, um, <laughs> but I would like to admonish you all in the audience to think about that question and then buy the book. Because trust me, it has gotten to the, the intricate details of things that were not allowed to be expressed or discussed before. And it, this is critical yeah. to us understanding that issue. It's a long answer. And that's why I'm going to defer to it to the, the reading, reading of, the of the book, support the, um, the information that has been gathered so laboriously and so detailed about especially that uh, uh, event and what led up to it, what happens after is in there. It is a wonderful treatise. And we'd like to thank you, uh, Tamara, for being with us. And thank you, Jamal. And thank you, uh, thank Mrs. You. Payne, for, for uh, helping us to understand why we need to, under, to, to carry on the legacy that Les left for us. Les left for us. Yeah. It is, and the Mercer, I'd like to thank you for your yes. sharing thoughtful questions. Thank you, Lamerti, and thank you so much, Tamara and family. It was just a really uh, a conversation where I learned a lot in the brief time together, and I really look forward to reading the book. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. <laughs> this is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. That's it for episode 17 of Read and Succeed. Join us for episode 18, reviewing 2020 National Book Award winner for fiction, Interior Chinatown, by up-and-coming Asian-American writer Charles Yu. This is Read and Succeed. I'm Dave Campbell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>